want to say a special thank you to the worship team this morning. Um, you know, when, when we come to worship, uh, I forget where I read it, but it talks about like the, the best thing to do when you have a heavy heart is to sing. Uh, it's not only your, your mind, but your heart uh, in, in worship. And it's so important, like as I come every week, to be refreshed in that uh, and to be served that way. And you guys used your gifts really well this morning, and I, I just, I'm really thankful to be lifted up this morning, uh, where, where I feel refreshed in the gospel. Um, so thank you. Thank you for, for serving us that way, and for the way you'll continue to serve us as we wait for God's provision of a, another man to lead worship. Um, yeah, I, do want, I want to pray before I jump in uh, this morning. God... And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to, the, to angels as the name he, inher- he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." God, I feel weak this morning. Um, it's, it's just, it's clearly your timing, God, uh, that I have the opportunity to share from this text this morning. As you impress on my heart, my inabilities, my weaknesses, and your strength, Lord. You are, the, but, but Jesus is the Son of God, and Lord, you have created everything, and your power reigns in this time. You are the one who seeks to elevate your Son this morning for the preaching of uh, the Word in Hebrews. So, God, I pray that your Spirit would accompany me. God, I can imagine, um, and, I, and I feel, and I carry the weight with the Downses as they, uh, as they serve, Lord, um, God, I pray that you would meet them in their, their service and their weakness and their inability and that you would continue to provide fruit and growth and, and learning language and building business and pointing others to Christ, Lord. So, yeah, Lord, we ask for your spirit to be with us in this time in your word and to be with our body, God, um, in our weakness. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys can turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're in the end of chapter 4 today. Where do you go when life feels hard? Uh, okay, so this is an old cliche, and pr- I'm, I'm assuming I'm probably like in the minority. I don't know how many people actually do this, but have you ever, I mean, you know the old cliche of like, find a happy place. Like, if you're stressed out, like, find a happy place, find a happy place, you know? I actually kind of do that uh, when I am, when I'm feeling heavy, I like, especially if I'm going to bed, I'll look over to Allie and I'll be like, all right, this is the place I'm thinking about right now. Whether it's like a serene lake or a cabin in the woods or like a warm beach, it'll help me like take my mind off of my, my current surroundings. I do it to the point sometimes even where it's like, I was just talking to somebody about this this week. Like, I will plan like a fake vacation for myself. Like I will go on Airbnb and I will find the Airbnb, like the perfect one in the location. I'll find the flights and the, I'll book the whole thing and have like activities and then I'll just delete it all just because I was like, ah, that was like a nice trip to wherever that was. Just to have like this experience um, to like to get myself out of my, my head space of like where I'm feeling stressed or whatever it might be. Um, We all go through, like life is hard. We all go through stress and we all cope with it in different ways. But when life is hard for you, where do you go? Where do you turn to find a break and where do you feel rest? I pray that as we study Hebrews 4, we would go into the throne room to find our rest. So let's jump into Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 this morning. Says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of God. For those of you who don't know, we've been going through the book of Hebrews for the last couple months. Um, the book of Hebrews is written by an unknown author to uh, a group of churches or a church uh, that, was, that included believers that were converted from Judaism. 
and the core fallen condition the author is addressing with that group of people is that they've been suffering a lot. They've been going through a lot of hard things. And as they're going through the hardness of life, whether it's suffering against their own sin or these external circumstances, they're tempted to revert back to their old ways to find their help there. And so what the author is doing is he's comparing Jesus to this old covenant that they had worshipped under as Jews and saying this new covenant in Christ is so much better. And he does that by comparing Jesus to all of these different people who instituted the the covenant, like the angels. Like we saw that he was comparing Jesus to the angels. He says Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels delivered the law, but Jesus is greater than the angels. It talks about Moses who inaugurated the law of God. You know, Jesus is greater than Moses. It talks about Joshua, how Joshua led the people into the promised land. The rest in Jesus is greater. And now in the next section of Hebrews, he's going to be talking about how Jesus is the greater high priest. So here in chapter 5 on through chapter 10, we're going to see how the author is now building an argument that Jesus is the greater high priest than those who practiced the law, this covenant. And so verses 14 through 16 kind of serve as a hinge in this book. Not only are they monumental in the content, there's so much that we can find just about who Jesus is, but they serve really as a key verse in understanding the book of Hebrews as this hinge into the next section of Jesus as a great high priest. It's an introduction to this section. Um. That's also, verses 14 through 16 are also on the tail ends of lots of warnings. And we'll get into that more as we study the passage. But uh, if you remember throughout chapter 3, he's given several stern warnings. In chapter 4, he gave several stern warnings. And he ends it with that, uh, that, that section about the word of God. How it, it pierces through you and it cuts straight to, and it knows all of your sin. You stand exposed before the one you would have account. And that's, that's actually supposed to serve as like a really, like a, like a wake up call, like a really firm warning to us that God knows your sin and you're going to stand in front of him and give an account. And then he leads into this passage of 14 through 16 about the great high priest. And so one important thing that for, for us to remember as we go through the book of Hebrews, it's so rich with theology. It teaches us so much about Jesus. We learn so much about the significance of who Jesus is uh, through the book of Hebrews. And so we can get really just like, wow, we just learning so much theology and really caught up in the theology. And that's awesome. That's what the, the author of Hebrews wants us to do. But he uses that theology always to drive exhortation, to tell us what we need to do. He builds up this, this about, he, he talks about who Jesus is and then bam, he hits you with what you need to do. And so the, the theology in this passage is that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. That is the theology that he so grandly builds in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And there's two exhortations here. The first exhortation is let us hold fast to our confession and let us with confidence draw near. So let me walk you through Hebrews 14 through 16, how I study the passage. Let's, let's, let's talk through what, what the passage means and how this elevates Jesus as a high priest and what he means by these exhortations. Uh, and then we can talk about how we can apply this to our lives today. So it starts out talking about the theology, right? Jesus is the sympathetic high priest. We need to talk about how, Jesus, how this passage explains Jesus as the sympathetic high priest. First of all, you'll notice that it says, we, since we then have a great high priest. Uh, that great high priest isn't just saying, yeah, like Jesus is great, like he's, he's better than most. It's saying he's greater. Remember, it's introducing Jesus has been greater than the angels. He's been greater than Moses. He's been greater than Joshua, and he is a greater high priest. And it'll go into how the, the Le- Levitical priesthood, it'll compare Jesus with the Levitical priesthood, those who acted out the old covenant in, in being priests. Uh, it'll compare Jesus with them. Yeah, therefore, again, that, that since then, or therefore at the beginning, is the author indicating that he's continuing on this argument. This is the same thing that he's been saying before. He's dropping in and saying, now, now, now we need to remember, not only is Jesus greater than this, and Jesus greater than this, and Jesus, we also need to remember that Jesus is the greater high priest. This is him continuing his argument of how Jesus is greater. So since then, we have a great high priest. 
And so the high priest, if you don't know, maybe, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, so I'm not going to belabor this point, um, but for those of you who don't know, what the high priest is, is that that was an official um, who, is, who would represent God to the people and the people to God. Um, and specifically, their, their, main, uh, their main task happened one, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, where they would go represent the, God, or the people to God and make an offering for sin. They would be the only one. So the temple is constructed where there's the holy place and then there's the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, there is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, there is the mercy seat or the throne of grace, which we will get to. This is the place where God sits. And so the, the high priest would enter in one day in a year. He would make an offering for the people's sins. And, and that, that would serve to, as, a, as a payment or a representation of the payment for the people's sins. That would satisfy God's wrath against them. He was the one who was going and representing the people saying, We have sinned, Lord, show us mercy. And, and so Jesus is the greater high priest. First of all, he's the greater high priest because he is Jesus, the Son of God. This is, a, this is a significant term, the Son of God, that you see all throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus says the Son of God has been greater than the angels. The Son of God, remember Moses, right? Moses was a servant. Jesus was the Son. So it, it's been comparing Jesus as the Son. And it's, it's a continual theme we'll see um, through the book of Hebrews. Um, but the Son of God really shows what's called the, the hypostatic union of Christ. That's a big fancy word, but it just means that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the Son of, He is fully God and fully man. And he talks about this in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2. It says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who, is, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject, subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is, not angel, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, my, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the, service to, uh, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he ha- himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So basically what it says there, this is the way I boil it down, Charlotte... I, I, this is an anecdote. This is not in my, le- in my notes. I probably shouldn't share this. But there's a song um, by the, the a rapper uh, Shylin. I don't know if you've heard. Yeah, this is that's. He, he talks about the hypostatic union. We played it one day, and Charlotte, Charlotte just out of nowhere says, "Dad, what is the hypostatic union?" And I'm like, she's like two years old. I'm like, "What? Why? How did you remember that?" She's like, "I heard it in the song." Uh, uh, and I, it's like she's like Jesus is fully God. Fully man, 200%. That's what he said. I was like, wow, you really picked up on a lot. But she asked me why Jesus had to be that way. And the, the way I boil it down is through this passage here in Hebrews 2. I say, okay, Charlotte, he, Jesus had to be fully God because only God could defeat the devil. That's what it says here, right? Like he had to come so that he might destroy the one who, through the power of death, uh, who has the power of death, that is the devil. Only God could defeat the devil. He, he did what only God could do. But he did it as a man. He paid for us and represented us perfectly as a man. He did this in our place as human beings. So he was fully man so he could pay for men and represent men. But he was fully God so that he could do what only God could do. Uh, and so Jesus as the son of God, is that, that's, that's one thing that qualifies him to be the best high priest. Because if he's going to represent God to men and men to God, who is better to do that than the only one who is fully God and fully man? Jesus, the son of God. Jesus also passed through the heavens. This gives like a, an imagery that you'll see. So we'll, we'll talk about yeah, how the, the, the high priest would enter in one day a year into the holy place. That he would, walk, he would pass through the temple. He would walk through the curtain where no one else would go. He would walk into these places that were restricted. And he had to do that. And he was so broken doing that. He first had to offer his own, an offering for himself. That, that high priest was just a man, and he, was, he would go in in absolute weakness. But Jesus is not like that high priest. He's the greater high priest. 
So when it talks about him passing through the heavens, it gives this imagery. It's like he's not passing through the earthly temple. He's in the presence of God in heaven. He is in the heavenly temple. That when Jesus ascended to heaven, he went through the heavenly temple. He went straight through to the presence of God. And he dwells there. He doesn't go there one day a year. He lives there. He's right in the presence of God. He went waltzing in straight into the presence of God. And God was fully pleased with that. There was no, nothing found to be unpleasing in Christ. He is, fully, like, he is the only one who God has complete pleasure with to walk into his presence and rightly represent man. No other man can walk into the heavenly presence of God and represent man like Christ does, fully pleasing God. That's why Jesus is the greater high priest. He's passed through the heavenly temple and is in the presence of God. So we need this greater high priest because we are naked and exposed before the one whom we must give an account. Think about what he has just said. Let me read verse 12 and 13. Mark did such a good job unpacking this last week. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Mark, Mark offered this picture of like walking in a crowd where like people surrounding you. Maybe you just you got a hoodie, you put that up or something. You can kind of like walk in with the crowd and not be noticed. That's not how we enter into heaven. Jesus, we will stand before God. And give an account for everything we've done. And this isn't, this isn't an account where you can just put your best foot forward and make the best case for yourself. Because the word of God pierces. It pierces your, your cover. It pierces the image of yourself that you give to the rest of the world. It pierces all the things that you would want to impress people with. It pierces straight down past between the joints and marrow and it gets to your soul and it sees what's really going on. And it gives this picture of being naked and exposed before God. Like you are absolutely laid bare. He sees every fault. He sees every nasty, sinful intention of your heart. Every bad and, and evil deed. You are completely and utterly exposed. You have nothing to hide behind when you stand behind. And he's the one you have to give an account to. The one who sees all, the all-seeing eye of God, is the one to whom you have to, to say, yes, I that's, this is how I lived my life. This is how I sinned. This is how I obeyed you. He knows exactly. And that should be a, like a serious warning. Think about how much he has just warned us. Think, he's just said three times in this last passage, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in a rebellion. He's just said three times in this last passage, they shall not enter my rest. There is a firm warning going on here. That's what's leading into this passage about our need for a great high priest. So when we're standing before the one whom we must give an account, it, this, this is a dire situation. We need this great high priest because we are exposed. So we, it says, since then, therefore, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. It talks about this great high priest as one. It says, it actually says it in the negative here. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why would it say it like that? Wouldn't, shouldn't he just say, We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses? Why does he clarify we don't have this high priest who's unsympathetic? It's probably because that's where our mind would go, right? Right? If you understand how holy God is, and you understand how sinful you are, and how exposed you are before God, you might think of God like a doctor, like this. Like, he would look at you and see all of your sin and say, man, this guy is too sick. There is no hope. He is beyond repair. Pull the plug. He's done. Or he might look at you as a doctor who would, who would be disgusted by, like, how many of you, how many of you brush your teeth right before you go to the dentist? Anybody here? 
Like you're looking for a good report. You, report. you want them to open your mouth and be like, wow, I don't even need to do anything. You're so great. Like, you, you, you want to, you'll maybe floss too. You get in an emergency floss. You haven't flossed in like a month or something and your, your gums are bleeding. You're like, oh, I just want, I, I don't want to be embarrassed before him. I don't want to gross him out, you know? Or maybe like, I don't, many of you probably don't have maids, uh, so this might not be an applic- applicable thing, but it's like cleaning your house before the maid comes over. Like, you don't want them to, really, you don't want them to see how really uh, gross your life is. God is not, God is, yeah, you, our heart would assume that, like, to go before God, like, we might have to clean up before we get there because we're too gross. We don't want to gross him out. We don't have, want him to assume the, bad, the worst about us. That's, we don't have a, a, a great high priest who's like a dentist. You need to brush your teeth before seeing. He's not afraid of being contaminated by you. It's not like someone who's like, oh, don't get too close. I might be sick. Like, the whole picture of Jesus with lepers, right? Like, he goes and he touches the leper, leper and he removes their sickness. He doesn't keep them separated in a way. He does, he's not afraid of being contaminated. But we, the author has to clarify we do not have a high priest like that because he knows that's, that's the natural inclination of our heart is to assume the high priest that we'd have, if he's really holy and he really sees me for who I am, he would be totally unable to sympathize with how weak and how sick I am. But it says that Jesus does sympathize with us and it says he sympathizes with us in every respect, right? It says, it says, we don't have, a, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. This is the same like verbiage we see in 2.18 where, it's, where it talks about Jesus' Jesus's high priestly ministry. It says, therefore he has been made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So in one sense, it's talking about Jesus' being like us as a man. He's really, he suffered the same way that we were, like that we have. He has, he's taken on sin, or not sinful flesh, he's taken on flesh. Uh, he's felt what it's like to be a weak human being. And it's not just that he has been, he's understood what it's like to be a man, but he's also understood what it's like to be a tempted man. Now, so he has been tempted in every respect as we have been. That's what it says. In every respect has been tempted as we are. So Jesus has, understands what it's like to be tempted. Now let me clarify a little bit about what that means. Now, we know that Jesus did not have the sinful bias that you and I have. He wasn't born with a sin nature like you and I have. So what he's saying is that he was like, he, he didn't have this, this same inclination of sin that you and I have. But if Jesus didn't have that same inclination of sin, how could he sympathize with us in our weakness? How could he understand what it's like to be a sinful human being? Well, first of all, it's because Jesus, Jesus felt temptation and he never sinned. He never gave in to temptation. Think about it like climbing a mountain, right? If I'm climbing a mountain and I'm getting exhausted climbing the mountain, I only know what it's like to climb that mountain to the point that I give up and say, I can't go any further. That's, that's how much I understand climbing the mountain, now, if I see a guy climbing straight past me and he goes all the way to the top, he understands really what it's like the most to climb that mountain, doesn't he? Jesus never sinned, and he was faced with intense temptations, but he is the only one who has never given in to temptation. So he absolutely understands what it feels like to be under the heat of temptation, and he would understand that more than you because you have given in to sin and you have given in to your temptation over and over again, and Jesus has never given in to that temptation. He reached the summit. When you think about the temptation of Jesus, I often think about Matthew 4 where he's being tempted by the devil. And that's a great example of Jesus being tempted but there's, there's several examples of Jesus being tempted throughout his life. The, the one that the author of Hebrews, I think, actually keys in on in the book is actually Jesus' temptation in facing the cross. Oh, what a beautiful song that was this morning. 
uh, that new song, Jerusalem, where it talks about him bearing all this weight and facing all this scorn, and to think of the heat of temptation in that moment for Jesus, who is the creator of the world, who is being scorned by the dust around them, who is, who is going to be separated from his father, with whom he's shared eternal communion, but he knew he had to face that. This is, this is what he says in chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Or in verse, 12 of, or verse 4 of chapter 12, it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And that echoes back to Jesus as he's facing the temptation to go to the cross. What does it say when he's praying in the garden? He's, he, was shed, he was shedding blood as he prayed. He was, he, was, he was sweating blood. And not only that, but he faced blood as he faced the cross. He died the most shameful death, bearing the sin of man and the, and the wrath of God. He, he, faced, he fought temptation to that point. So when it says that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, I would argue that he was tempted stronger and more powerfully than any man who has ever been tempted. Even though he does not have the sinful bias that we have, Jesus absolutely experienced temptation in, in his life, in, and he says in every way that we have. He understands what it is like. But it also clarifies here, yet without sin. And in that sense, Jesus is not tempted as we are because we constantly give in to our temptation to sin. If you think about it this way, if like sin is the color blue, every bit of your life would be tainted blue in some way, shape, or form. Temptation and falling into sin has touched every area of your own life because of your sinful inclination. You're, you're giving in to temptation. But Jesus, it never touched him. He was without sin. Oh, I love this quote from one of the commentaries. It says, um, what we and what they needed was not a fellow loser, but a winner. Not one who shares our defeat, but the one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a sinner, but a savior. We needed a winner. Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was the winner. He was the victor that we needed. That's what makes him such a perfect high priest. And I want, to, I want to draw us back even to the beginning of verse 15, where it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Sympathize with our weakness. That word for weakness there uh, talks about, it, it's like sickness, um, like our illness. Uh, I think that's a great picture, too, of what it's like. And, so, and, and the word sympathy uh, isn't just like a sympathy that's like, at bay, like, oh man, I feel bad for you, or whatever. It's like a deep sympathy. Uh, to think of it like this, like, think of your best friend. Um, the one that you would go, like, who you know would have your back no matter what, and you have theirs. Like, if you saw them going through something and struggling, you would, you, that, that feeling of sympathy of like, it's not just like, oh man, I hope they get better. It's like, you are going to be the one, if they're tripping and falling, you're coming up next to them and walking with them. Your band of brothers, you know, think about it like that. Or another, another imagery that fits this word would be uh, the picture of a parent, right? When you look at your child and you see their pain, that pain and that desire to fix the problems that are going on, that's the type of sympathy that Jesus sees towards you and I. So he's not like this doctor who says he's too sick. I, you know, I might throw in the towel. I think, I actually think back to when I was studying this, I got really emotional thinking back to last year, actually on uh, October 29th of last year, my birthday. Um, uh, William was in the hospital with RSV. Um, actually, I'm, this is a, I'm actually mixing things up. I'm on a, the, the other time he was in the hospital was in December, right before Christmas. And he had this hypoglycemic reaction and he was like slumped over. I came in his crib and he couldn't like even lift his head up and we didn't know what was going on. We freaked out. We got to the hospital. I remember him laying there in the hospital bed and he was just like this little two-year-old body. He was so weak, just laying there, like couldn't open his eyes. He was just slumped over. And like, can you imagine what I was feeling in that moment? I wasn't saying, you know, oh, it's no one, no, never once did I think, uh, he's too sick, might as well throw in the towel. Never once would I have dreamed of thinking, 
wouldn't be in this spot if he would have just kept his hands out of his mouth and not gotten, given himself so many germs. <laughs> I, I never once thought, I hope I don't catch what he's got. All I wanted in that moment was to sit in that bed and to take what was going on with my son. I was so, I was so concerned for him. And that's how God views us in our weakness and our sin. Like, he views us as the sick little child who's struggling with our weakness against sin. And he wants to, he sympathizes with our weakness so much that he, took, he did take it on. He became the man. He took our sin. He did go in our place. He actually could do that for us. That was the kind of sympathy that Jesus had for us. That's how he views you and I and our sin. We don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. No, he became like us in every respect, tempted just as we are, yet without sin. That's the high priest we have. Exhortation number one. Let us hold fast to our confession. The, first con- the, the confession is this, that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, they were being tempted to just make him another thing and return to their Jewish traditions. They were just tempted to like, like yeah, Jesus is good and I will go to what I, I, I know will fix the problems. I've grown up this way. This has always worked before, so I'm, I'm going to go back to practicing Judaism. Maybe that can help me through this suffering in my life. Maybe this can help me fix my sin. The warnings in Hebrews use this, uh, this language, this, this language as the, of like the Son of God, um, the importance of like seeing Jesus as the Son of God in, in the warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, as, the, the book, as the author of the book um, writes, he's, he's saying this, this is the thing we must not let go of, that Jesus is like the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. If we're supposed to hold fast to something. It says this in chapter 6, verse 6. It says, when it talks about like falling away, the, like the depth of that sin. It says, since they are re-crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. Like real offense of, of falling away and neglecting Jesus for who he really is. That you're neglecting the Son of God. Or in verses, uh, like the capstone to this section. So this is like the front of Jesus being the high priest. The end of this section is in uh, in, in chapter 10. And at the end of this, there's a warning that's very similar. It says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And as a rage, the spirit of grace, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That, that the importance of holding fast our confession is not spurning the Son of God, not neglecting Him, not, not taking Him for who He really is. We have to, if we are being warned, we have to hold fast to this confession of who Jesus really is as the Son of God. And this is the great danger being warned against over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Don't neglect that Jesus is the Son of God. What does it mean? What's the significance of Jesus being the Son of God? Look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. This is, this is the greatest description of Jesus as the Son of God, I think, in the book of Hebrews, where he says, The heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is what it means to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That is our confession, that Jesus is what it says there. And to really live like Jesus is the Son of God means Jesus, he is everything to us. Like, there is so I, much. I could preach a sermon on this text, but guess what? Mark already did that. So if you want to like, th- think about what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God, go back to week one of, of the Hebrew series and re-listen to that sermon. That's what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. So hold fast. Uh, He's calling them to hold fast in their shame. Think about that. He says, 
Because he's addressing them in this, after this warning and after saying they are exposed, right? So what would be pulling them away from that confession? What would be, what, where would their inclination be to not like treat Jesus really as the son of God? Like, so if, they're, if you're standing before the one whom you have to give an account, you're fully exposed, he sees all of your sin, where might your sinful heart go to try to, to, try to um, fix that problem without seeing Jesus really as the only solution? They're, they were reverting back to the law. They were seeing their sin and their sickness, and they were saying, I better clean myself up a little bit with obedience and with, uh, just th- with fixing my problems on my own um, by trying to, to, to make everything right in my life before I approach God. I don't want to come to God to, to look for help. I better be cleaned up a little bit before I get to him. And that might seem like it has merit to it. Like you're, There's like this respect for God's presence. He's so holy, I need to make sure I am, and I'm right before I even come to him. But that is, actually, that is actually living according to the law and not living according, living according to grace, right? Because he's saying in your weakness, in your temptation, in your falling, that's when you're supposed to draw near to the throne of grace. So in your shame, in your weakest moments, that's when we have to hold fast to this truth of Jesus is who he really says he is. He has to be the only one who made purification for our sins. The second exhortation he says is, let us draw near with confidence. This is a command to pray. Again, the theology of Hebrews drives the exhortation. So if Jesus really deeply sympathizes with our weakness, as a father does to their child, and if I'm really sick with sin and will have to give an account for everything I have done, and if I really struggle with temptation and will constantly fall, if not for the strength of the one who has never failed, then my only hope in life, and for any moment is this life, is that I rely completely on Christ in prayer. That if if I really see life and my weakness and his strength and the way they truly are, I need that power at the throne of grace. I need the strength of the one who did not fall. How are we to draw near? He says we're to draw near with confidence. This means we have no fear of approaching God. We know his heart is full of love for us. Obviously, there's a fear of God in the sense that we, that we should all have, where it's a dependence on God and a recognition of our need for God and our desire to, to, to follow him and please him. Those, those are all good. That, that is a healthy fear of God. But an unhealthy fear of God is one where you say, I could never approach him because I am just too sick with sin. So we don't have that type of fear. And we have no need to hide our sin before God because he sees it all. Like we can honestly confess our sickness and our sin before him because he sees it and he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He wants, to know, he wants us to know his heart for, him, for us as, as our father. We're drawing near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's the mercy seat. That's another way to translate that. We're drawing near to the throne of grace. Think about that. Like, what is, when you think about the throne, especially the throne of the one to whom you're supposed to give an account, you would think of that throne as being like a throne of wrath, if you really understand. But he says you're drawing near not to a throne of wrath, you're drawing near to a throne of grace. That's the throne that Jesus sits on. That's where his glory is displayed, on a throne of grace. Jesus' greatest glory is in the grace of that he shares to us in the gospel. That's his throne. That's where you're drawing near. We draw near to a throne of grace and we receive mercy. This is our call to approach the throne. So if we're receiving mercy, what is mercy? It's not giving to us what, des- what we deserve. So it's not only just, he's not even just inviting us or just urging us and exhorting us to come near when we're being tempted before we sin, but if we're looking for mercy, we're going there after we sin. He says, in their weakest moments, after you have, you have failed, you knew that you were supposed to do something, you didn't do it. You knew that God did not want you to, to sin in this way, and you did it anyways. You've given into temptation. You see your shame and your sickness of sin potently. 
A lot of times we would just want to stay at our, we, we wouldn't want to come near to God in that moment because we feel too gross. And he says, that's when you need to go to the throne of grace. Get your mercy there. Right in your, in, in your failing, in your least, in your weakest moment, after you have already given into the sin, go to the throne of grace. Find your mercy there in prayer. Find grace to help in the time of need. We don't have a God who is unhelpful, like he is, there's actual help to be found in prayer. Like God is not just a theological idea. He's one that actually affects our hearts and our lives. He actually transforms us. And there is real actual help to be found when you are in the heat of temptation and you say, I'm too weak. I can't do this on my own. I can't get through this circumstance. I can't walk in the way that you want me to, Lord. I am too weak. There is grace in that moment of weakness, in your moment of temptation. There is grace to be found in your moment of need. And it's a moment of need. We do need him, don't we? I have a few points of application to close with here. You have to pray. We have to pray. Here's three reasons why you might not pray. Three reasons why you might not pray. You won't pray if you don't think you need it. You can convince yourself you are mostly good and absent of sin and temptation. Can't you? Like you, you feel that pain and that exposure to sin and you want to just push that aside and think, no, no I'm pretty good. How do you... Con- how do you how do you suppress that? I think there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Maybe you're comparing yourself to somebody else or you're just minimizing your own sin, thinking it's not that much. But you, your heart has like an endless amount of idols that it can produce, that, it can, that can tell you you're good enough and there's, there's no problem with your, with your heart. You, you can think you really have, you've, you've taken care of it. You can justify it. You can say, well, I wouldn't have sinned if it wasn't because so-and-so did this or because this thing happened in my life. I'm a victim to this. Like, you can say it's really not that big of a deal. But the, the, all of those things, all of those aspects of our life that would, that would push us away from like, feeling our need of God because of our sinful condition... Those will push us away from prayer. And if you're giving voice to those things in your life, you're not going to pray. You won't pray if you don't think you need it. If you feel like you're pretty much good on your own. You might in your head know that you're a sinful person, but in your life you don't really think about where you are absolutely in need of mercy and grace to help in your moments of need. You won't pray. Uh, You won't pray because you feel ashamed. Some, some of you here are being pushed away from God's presence because you are so keenly aware of your sin. And you feel like there's no way I can come before God in my grossness of my sin. I failed too many times. I, I've repented and then I've fallen back. And I just keep on going and God's disgusted by me at this point. I just need to clean up a little bit. Once I get things under control, my prayer life will be a lot better. You won't pray if you don't understand God's love for you and his ability to sympathize with you in your weakness. You won't pray if you don't think it will help. If you forget that God is powerful, if you forget the God you worship, if you forget Jesus is the son of God and that you don't actually think he has power to help in your, day, in your daily life. If, you, you're basically, you, you, if you're living basically like an atheist, right? you can have a confession to say, yeah, God is who I think he is, and he's, he's powerful and not. But your prayer life will really show you what you think of the power of God. Right? If you're not going to him drawing, like asking for help, if you don't think he actually has the power to change things, you're living just like an atheist would. right? You're living like there's really no God out there that can help me. You won't pray if you don't think you need the help or if you don't think God can help. If you have a low view of who God is. Four reasons you have to pray. Because this is the relationship that God desires to have with you. Number one, this is the relationship that God desires to have with you. 
He has opened up the way into his presence. The veil was torn in two, and he is standing not not just in a temple on earth. He's standing in the presence of God in heaven. He's inviting you. He says, I'm here. I've come into God's throne. I'm advocating for you. Come on in. Get into the presence of God with me. The way is open. Come here. That's the relationship that Jesus is telling he has for you here in Hebrews 14. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. He wants this relationship with you. We have to pray because this is the kind of relationship God has provided for us in Christ. One where we can go into the presence of God with confidence. Second reason you have to pray is because you have no hope of obeying God in this life and living out your faith without seeking his help in prayer. You will not be able to do it. He is the help that you need. You don't have the ability on your own. You absolutely need his help to get through this life. You, we, you need to pray because you need that mercy. Like you need a, when it talks about his mercies being new daily and every morning, like this prayer is a refreshment in the mercy of God and in, in, in your weakness, you know, being able to come and confess your sin and knowing that you're still loved and accepted by God you pray, you pray because you need mercy and a reminder of Jesus to pay, that Jesus has paid the price for your sins. Fourthly, you need to pray because he is the son of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who made purification for sins and has sat down on the right hand of the throat of God. He has the power to help. Pray to him because he is powerful, because we do have a God who actually changes things, who actually transforms us, who actually has power to help in our lives. When you are weak, he shows his strength. You have to pray So let me ask you just a few questions then in light of these applications. Do you pray? Are you a family that prays? Are you a life group that prays? Are are we a church that prays? Does this dependent relationship on God, this utter need for his presence, this this reality of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us, is that actually shape us as a church are we praying second point of and the final point of application I have for us is just talking about the sympathy of Jesus towards us right in light of how Jesus views us at our weakest and most most sinful moments he is full of sympathy and help. And how are you displaying that kind of sympathy in your own life? Like, how are you modeling the sympathy of Christ towards others? I think we're, our, remember, our temptation when we first hear about our status before God being exposed in our sins is to think we have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. And I think we think that because we would be that high priest. If we were put in that position, we would be the person who would be unable to sympathize with the sinful people who we represent. Ironically, even though we are sinful ourselves. I think often when we hear of people, brothers or sisters, of Christ in, in sin, our response is to think, oh, that's gross. Like, that person's too far gone. They have, they have been struggling forever. There's no hope for them. They, I, don't, I don't have any hope they're going to change. Or that's their own fault. You know, if they would have been living a lot more like me, they wouldn't be in this position. Uh, It's so frustrating to see them just constantly failing. Or to pull away because it's like, oh man, I don't want to be around a person who does that. That sin, gross. I don't want to touch that kind of sin in my life. We pull away because we don't have sympathy. Yet, the one who offers sympathy completely is the one who never sinned. He, his sympathy is so complete for us, so perfect towards us. There is another type of sympathy, though, that I think is, that we may be tempted to display. Like, we swing to the other side of the pendulum oftentimes, where you will give, a, a, like, a false grace, where it says, hey, don't worry about it, we all do it. Like, you don't worry about your sin, it's not a big deal, we all start, struggle like that. You're fine, don't beat yourself up. It's not a big deal. 
I've done the same thing as you, so really, it's not that big of a deal. And these are statements that try to undo the intense warnings of all of Hebrews 3 and 4. And that's not how we're supposed to handle our temptation to sin. We're not supposed to give false grace that says sin is not a big deal. How have we, if we're doing that, we're ignoring every bit of the warnings that he's been, the author has given before this. The real thing we do is like we, to sympathize, to, to fulfill Galatians 6.2, to come under the burden of, uh, of the yoke of, like, of our brother struggling with sin, Right? It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this sympathy towards one another is coming beside them and pointing them to the throne of grace and pointing to them, them to where they actually can have help in their time of, time of need. Bearing with them in prayer, praying with them. And, and leading them to go to prayer when their flesh is saying, I'm too sick to go. And you say, no, I'm pulling you into the, the, throne, of the, the throne room. You are going before the one who actually gives you help. You're going to go before the one who has mercy. It's pointing them to God. See, we have to stop thinking about God as being like us. We, and we, he's, he's not like us. Um, Isaiah 55, 6 through 9 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, lest the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God who will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your thoughts and your, uh, the, or in my thoughts your thoughts. His, high, his thoughts are higher. His ways are higher. His ways are different than ours. You know why his ways are higher and greater and beyond ours? Because he shows so much more compassion than we do. He is holy, but his, what, is, what really separates God from us is his ability to show compassion. That's what he talks about here. That's, that's the differentiator that, he, that, that shows his ways being so much higher so we are shaped by the gospel and we have received the sympathy of Christ. We should fulfill the law of Christ by coming one, along one, with one another in sympathy, feeling their pain with them, letting their problem be your problem, pointing them to the victor, the one who has never sinned, and pulling them before the throne of grace. Let me pray as I invite the worship team to come. Jesus, thank you that you care so much about us and our weakness and that uh, even this morning you've met us in our weakness. You've met me in my weakness. And um, Lord, you've, uh, you've guided our time in the word. I pray that we would see our need for you and we would draw near to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Lord, we are sinful people. I know, God, there's people in here who feel a reluctance to approach you because they are so filthy with their own sin. And would you let them know the help and the mercy that you have for them in your throne room? Would you let them know your loving heart of sympathy and your perfect victory over that? God, would you actually change our lives, Lord? Free us from our sin, God. We will face temptation until we are with you in glory, but you have the power to actually give us victory and temptation. That is your gospel every day, uh, that we can have victory over sin through Christ. Thank you for opening up the throne room. Thank you for even this time to be able to pray together as a church. And would we be people who hunger for the power and recognize our help. And, and in light of the gospel, in light of the relationship we have to you, would we be a church that prays and draws near to the throne of grace with confidence? We ask these things in your name.